Hello and welcome to the Kitchfork Media Podcast, an anti-nostalgic look back at the indie music scene of the aughts and all the hipster trash that came forth thereof. I'm one of your hosts, Max Cohen. And I'm one of your other hosts, Liz Ryerson. And welcome to the Kitchfork Media Network. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Condé Nast, we're trying to sell out. (laughs) We should brand that or something. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And today on this episode of Kitchfork, we are talking about the 2002 Boards of Canada classic, Gio Gotti. An interesting album to talk about and a difficult album to talk about. Yeah. Uh, Because so much of the theme of this podcast, like we're talking about like, you know, indie music of the 2000s where... You know, a lot of people might still have a lot of fondness for plenty of the music. Some of it has certainly fallen out of favor, but it is impossible to argue that like a lot of the stuff that, you know, when we're when we're talking about the Shins or we're talking about, you know, Interpol or a lot of these groups like that the ephemeral nature and the fact that everything is so tied to its era is kind of like one of the themes of this podcast and now we're talking about an album that sounds the least like it comes from any particular point in time of maybe any album that i've ever heard (laughs) yeah i could definitely i mean there's some what i like to call warp chords in there where like you hear it it's like oh this is definitely a warp record but for the most part, yeah, it is like a, a very hermetic album, you know? It is not interesting. Yeah, you certainly do <laughs> not need any context or anything really for this album of like, in order to enjoy it. I mean, certainly context is always fun and useful. But yeah, if there's ever an album where uh, you don't need context to enjoy it, it's this one probably. As we'll get into it, that has not stopped people from inventing context for it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this is the second full-length official album by Boards of Canada. <laughs> official album, we should say. Yeah, I don't know what the status of twoism is. Or Bach BOC Maxima, which you can find online, but right? it's BOC or Bach Maxima is like a earlier version of Music Has a Right to Children. So yeah, their first album was 1998's Music Has a Right to Children. Boards of Canada are two brothers, and apparently they were secret about the fact that they were brothers until I think... They were. Actually, this Pitchfork... There's a Pitchfork interview from 2005 mm-hmm. when they released their next album, and I think that is when they... It was definitely around Campfire Head. Yeah. I remember it very clearly, because a similar thing happened with Autocur mm. as well, where they like their identities were revealed by Pitchfork or whatever. Interesting. But that was a big thing about Warp Records at the time, is like if you weren't specifically Richard D. James, you know, there was always this very secretive nature around the artists, you know. Square Pusher wore a helmet before Daft Punk did. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I think that was just inherently part of, I guess, the quote-unquote aesthetic of Warp, if you can call it an aesthetic or i think it was also it was a response to the rock star dj mold that came out of rave culture you know like the paul oakenfolds and the dj tiestos you were like the prodigy where they were like oh everybody was saying like oh the new rock star is the dj right yeah so like for an electronic musician to become be deliberately obscure is like very much a response to that zeitgeist yeah the sibling act is something that has a, a big legacy, at least to me, with even if you're only counting Boards of Canada, Sparks, and The Knife. That's like two of... And Fiery Furnaces. 
oh yeah fiery furnaces like several of my favorite yeah. acts who all released things in that era so it was a big decade for siblings for sure <laughs> yeah it's the brothers michael sanderson or mike and uh marcus owen is how you pronounce thank you his. for jumping on that although it's his middle name but yeah yeah i looked it up <laughs> thank god but yeah, they were trying to avoid comparisons to uh, Orbital, I think, who were also brothers um, at the time. Oh, yeah. By the way, they're from Scotland. They live kind of on the outskirts of uh, Edinburgh in kind of a rural-ish area. I think, you know, they are pretty protective of their lives and privacy, certainly. Although some of the stuff about, you know, people thinking that they live in a cult or you know, that they're <laughs> completely out of contact with the outside world, I think is not actually true. And they have actually given several interviews, but not nearly to the extent of a lot of other artists. Um, and Boards of Canada fans are crazy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in both good and bad ways. So the especially the website, the Boards of Canada wiki, the bocpages.org, has compiled like every single interview that they've ever done, including ones that are not in English that they have not translated yet. But I read through almost all of them. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, repeated information in them. But yeah, so their first release was Music Has a Right to Children in 1998. But for years before that, they had made music together. And they were actually in a band at one point that was more sort of in the vein of like, Cocktoo Twins and My Believe Valentine, like in the early 90s. No kidding. Yeah. They had done electronic stuff kind of before and after that, but I think around the time that you would associate like a lot of warp artists of coming out of, you know, like Acid House or right. thing like early 90s sort of phenomena, like they're not really of that milieu or. It kind of shows. I mean, you can see that there's a more songy atmospheric vibe to their work than there is to anything besides maybe like selected ambient works too you know mm -hmm. i mean i think that's always been their greatest assets i mean they're often put under the like genre label of idm intelligent dance music my least favorite maybe other than post-rock i guess they're both pretty bad uh, genre names they're both pretty bad but intelligent dance music is worse to say i feel like None of the things that are considered intelligent dance music are actually dance music. Or I wouldn't necessarily call it all intelligent either. Like <laughs> most of Aphex Twin's songs are shit posts. Yeah. I will say, do you prefer intelligent dance music to electronic listening music? No, that's pretty bad too. I mean, that's they're bad in different ways though. It's true, yeah. But, you know, there are people who are like, there's a pitchfork list of, oh, the best IDM albums of all time. And I just like, uh, especially with Boards of Canada, I really just can't find myself putting them in the same category as an artist like some of the later Aphex Twin things or Square Pusher or something where I can sort of see like where that label comes from. But I just never got that feeling from boards of canada i guess just to describe their their music in in short like uh their name comes from the national F film board of canada which has made uh, like documentaries and stuff a lot of them are about yeah they're about natural phenomena or they're about like indigenous peoples or you know things like that um and a lot of that documentary film from around the time 
uh, was not just shown in Canada, but was also shown in the UK where they would have been. Although the brothers actually did live in Canada for a few years in Alberta. And the album cover of Music Has a Right to Children is actually a family photo of theirs. No kidding. The one with the faces. Yeah. And it's taken in Calgary, Alberta, where they lived for a few years. Got it. Okay. But yeah. And then they... They kind of had done experiments together, just like recording samples of various things. Like they've done that since the 80s, since they were kids. And, you know, it eventually developed into the sound that most people really associate with them, which is sort of what came about on Music Has a Right to Children, which is their most well-known album. It was their debut album. Some people call it like one of the best electronic music albums of all time. I don't know. I I think the cult of Boards of Canada has really developed around that album in particular. But yeah, there's something to be said about like IDM was seen as a very difficult and mercurial genre, and so for that to have like an album that is as accessible as Boards of Canada, even though like I would personally say like if Selected Ambient Works One or Richard D. James album also have pop songs on them. Mm-hmm. But like, I think for there to be an album as accessible as music has the rights to children at the time when it came out, like in the late nineties, I think had a big impact on it. Cause it was like maybe the most accessible and most in the spotlight IDM really got. <laughs> we'll get into it. There, the pitchfork review the, compares it to kind of blue and like substantially makes no sense, but I kind of get it. And that I think there's a lot of people whose only jazz album is kind of blue and by the same token, I think there's a lot of people whose only IDM album would be music to, is the rights to children. Yeah, probably. I That was GeoGaddy in the GeoGaddy review, right? Yeah, that's in the GeoGaddy review, but they're talking about music. Yeah. I mean, I do think this was, uh, they are a gateway into electronic music for a lot of people. They certainly were for me because I avoided a lot of electronic music for a long time. I avoided a lot of, we'll say, instrumental electronic music for a long time because I had this bias towards music with vocals. But so they've talked a lot about how the sen- the whole sensibility of Boards of Canada developed around the sort of sounds and soundtracks of a lot of these documentary pictures in the 70s and 80s. But it, it can like that kind of music, like that early synth music goes even back to like the late fifties. Mm-hmm. So there is like an inherent, like retro wistful sound to it, but they talk about how, because they were young kids in the seventies, they have these kind of like half remembered memory slash almost like nightmares of of these things because there was just a very dark sensibility overriding everything in the 70s like there's a lot of like pessimism about human nature and there's a lot of paranoia about technology that they talk about being in films like logan's run or things like that where things were sort of very dystopian in a way that it's funny because by the time that music has a right to children came out like the sensibilities were so opposite like if you look at late 90s stuff i mean uh that the whole y2k aesthetic has become like a trendy tumblr fashion aesthetic but that was like very dominant right at the time that music has a right to children came out Mm -hmm. which is channeling this kind of wistful nostalgic but also kind of unsettling and disturbing feeling of like this lost reality that was in like a lot of the those kinds of soundtracks. So I really think that that's what comes into it. And then also I think there's this feeling of like lost innocence or lost childhood, which sort of comes in with like the amount that they use 
samples of children like especially in the first two albums they actually kind of stopped doing that as much after that but but yeah anyway so i think that is the most interesting thing and that's why also i have trouble calling them like idm is they don't really fit in with like especially towards the late 90s there was this whole breakbeat like jungle thing and that's when like apex twin and square pusher were like we gotta push the beats you know right and they kind of went the opposite direction of that for sure but although there are there is some like textural and melodic simpatico with stuff off of like i care because you do you know or like what's the one autocar album that has music on it amber (laughs) that has music on it Uh, like there's, there's definitely some like shared tonal aesthetics, but, but you're right. I mean, Boards of Canada has this, I think for me, the, the big like standout of their music is this really heavy use of like vibrato and, uh, low pass filters Mm -hmm. to make it sound like tape that's decaying, especially in GeoGaddy. There's almost a nauseating feeling to a lot of the, the electronics. Definitely. They really kind of swell in and out and it has that. Yeah, that nightmarish film reel quality to it. A lot of the stuff that they recorded apparently was like hi-fi too. They just went through a a whole sort of elaborate process to fuck with the sound and make it sound like that deliberately. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's pushed to such extremes that you would have to. We'll get into this, but one of the reasons I really like Geogadi is that like it's considered like their dark album, but like I I think their music's always been a little sinister. And Geogad is just the only album that really leans into that because there is something like faintly nightmarish and about these like half remembered recordings and, you know, dreams of old film. Um, are we jumping ahead? Uh, did we talk about how we got into this? Oh, no, no. Uh, we, we can talk about that. Yeah, but you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I sort of put this album in the same category as something like Kid A in some ways. I mean, it's a different sensibility, but this looming feeling of paranoia. Well, and it's interesting because it's, it's an IDM album that is post-Kid A at this point. Yeah, although it was recorded, they started doing the material in like, you know, 1999 before Kid A came out, but they right. gradually worked on it. The one thing I was going to say is while they were still working on this album, the September 11th attacks happened and apparently the duo said they were glued to the TV for the whole day and that they were pushed into making an even darker record from that. So GeoGaddy, by the way, came out in early 2002. It's their follow up to Music Has the Right to Children um, four years after. But yeah. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, let's actually talk about your background. What? Why don't you start? What's your background with GeoGaddy? Pretty normal. I just, I was into Warp Records. Like I got into them like maybe in 2000, like when file sharing got big, it was a big moment, at least in my memory for obtuse electronic music because they weren't exactly albums. You know, you would find Richard D. James album in stores, but you wouldn't find like music or like uh, an obscure square pusher EP at the record store. So, but it was all over Napster. And I remember like, (laughs) you know, being an edgelord, like 12 year old and being really into industrial music. And then somebody being like, you got to hear the hard shit and playing like, come to daddy for me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, you think skinny puppies hardcore. Wait until you hear come to daddy. One of the worst Aphex twin tracks, I think personally. (laughs) It is. It's funny to me. I like it in the same way I like Lost Highway and that it's like a very new metal <laughs> work from somebody I would not associate with that genre. Yeah, I can see that. But it's not good. It's very of its moment. Very of its moment. But so I got really into like Aphex Twin and Square Pusher. Yeah, and Music Has the Right to Children. I mean, Music Has the Right to Children 
my recollection of it is that it was one of the few like album works that people would talk a lot about from the Warp Records catalog. You know, it was like this and like Richard D. James. And maybe you'd hear about selected ambient works, but like, you know, Square Pusher was more of a singles act. You know, people like uh, Fortet or um, who's that bassist? Amon Tobin or whatever his name is. Not Amon Tobin, although that's oh, that's worth talking about too. But like, you know, you just got into it and you would get into it in bits and bobs and tracks that you'd find on Napster, but you could always find like all music has the rights to children. So, and I liked it, you know, I think it didn't hit me in the way that like Aphex Twin did, but I always liked it. And I thought there was a lot of like cool aesthetic ideas in it, even if it didn't always like the, the interesting thing about them compared to like Aphex Twin is I still don't think they're as melodically obvious as the most poppy Aphex Twin songs. Oh, some of the Aphex Twin songs, the melodies are like something a, a four-year-old would write, which is fine, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny to think of like Boards of Canada being like the pop act when there's like a strain of pop and almost everybody on Warp at Records is just not always what they do. So I was into them, but like you didn't hear from them for a while. You know, it was like two years between music and their next EP and then two years from that to Geo Gaddy, which like when I was a kid felt like oceans of time, two years and not like I am now where I feel like I went to bed in 2000 and 2020 and woke up here talking to you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But I remember when G- when Geo Gaddy came out, people were pretty surprised about it. And there used to be this thing in some record stores where you could like scan a CD and listen to it. Mm hmm. I was still uncertain about Boards of Canada at the time. Like, oh, they're fine, but do I want to spend $20 on a CD? And so, like, I scanned Gio Gatti, and um, that song, Music is Math, comes on. Because mm-hmm. I don't know how it decided what songs to play, but Music is Math comes on. I was like, oh, fuck, no, I love this. For some reason, where I was at at the time, like, Gio Gatti, the mood of it just really, really hit. And from there, I think I was able to appreciate the other Boards of Canada releases more. Mm-hmm. Like from there, I was able to go back to In a Beautiful Place Out in the Country, which I really like. And then moving forward, I really like Campfire Head Phase a lot. Very underrated album. It's weird that some people ignore that one. Extremely underrated album. I don't know why I got the reaction it did. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I haven't listened to Tomorrow's Harvest. Uh, uh, I've heard it's good. Tomorrow's Harvest is good, but not great. I think that's easily their worst album, but I need to give it another chance. It's too uh, monochromatic in terms of mood. Yeah, which is a bummer because I think we'll get into it when we talk about Geo Gaddy, but I think if there's one thing Boards of Canada is really good at, and all of their albums that I've heard, you know, from Twoism to Head Phase, is being able to manipulate mood to create a full work that you can kind of get lost in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, taking notes on this album was weird because I realized I'd never thought of these songs as individual songs before. Me either. Yeah. There's all these like great interludes and stuff that create like a very holistic album and you would just put it on and listen to the whole thing. (laughs) Like it feels weird to like think of these songs as like gyroscope as an individual thing and not like a textural note or like the beach at red point. as an individual thing and not like the odd sound effect that comes in yeah it's it's interesting outside of a few tracks i didn't really have a sense of like and i've listened to this album many many times oh yeah same yeah it's designed to not be like songy you know yeah outside of i think 1969 is the one that that jumped out to me when i first heard this album the devil is in the details as well i'd add julian candy to that too for me like those are yeah those feel like they have like beats to them you know Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, I didn't I didn't really have a sense either. So yeah, that's interesting. I had definitely heard a lot about electronic music from I was on this website called OC Remix, <laughs> video game music arrangement site, which is where I started making music and it was all electronic music, but I didn't really listen to electronic music outside of like Kid A. Right. Because I, I just didn't like instrumental. I needed like vocals for whatever reason. I think it's true for a lot of people like early in their musical lives, right? You need to have that melody line. It is weird because I could handle like, you know, I listened to Olivia Tremor Control and stuff. I could handle like crazy tape loop stuff, but I needed vocals to be on. I needed to be comforted <laughs> by voices, I guess. Right. There had to be a human being in there somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, people mentioned Aphex Twin constantly as you would imagine because it was like 2002 2003 on oc remix people would be like oh have you heard apex oh your stuff sounds like apex you know they'd say it about almost anything Uh. but i just kind of ignored a lot of that stuff and boards of canada is sort of like one of those names like kate bush or some uh, things that i just heard but never bothered i confuse them with the books honestly which is kind of funny to me but I never really listened to them until 10 years ago, which is a weird because it's like the halfway point in between when this album came out and now. I heard this album in a, in a very strange situation. I mean, I was staying and I was crashing in someone's like spare room in their house and like a lot of housing instability. And so, the person who recommended it to me, I'm sure I'll talk about them at some other point, was like, oh, that's their only good album. <laughs> That's <laughs> the kind of like remark that often say about about artists. But uh, I was like, okay, great. Um, and I listened to it a bunch. And yeah, I got into it. And I didn't really have a good reference point. So, uh, you know, I, I went back and got into more Boards of Canada and Aphex Twin and stuff from that. So it was kind of a cool... I mean, I definitely listened to electronic music before, but it might have been the first like you know, full instrumental electronic album that I really got into. So, oh, and at some point I, I bought the CD and I, uh, while preparing for this uh, episode, I put the CD in my PS2, which I still have. Yes. And listened to it a bunch. And there's this like little rotating cube that moves. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good... Uh, not my favorite uh, UI for CDs. Um, I'm a big fan of the Dreamcast one, but mm -hmm. it's a it's a top tier one for sure. Yeah, that's one of the only CD players I have other than my old laptop, which I don't really use anymore. So uh, it just felt appropriate because it feels like a lot of people would have listened to this album for the first time, putting it into their PS2. Like for sure, it, it yeah. just feels appropriate. But yeah, and honestly, I I really liked the album, but I didn't individual points like didn't necessarily stick with me it's kind of like a, a half remembered thing so going back to like look at stuff for this episode has been really interesting i kind of i didn't realize how many people there's this sort of like weird uh the caretaker like quality thing with this album because there's a lot of like backmasking you know vocals and like people saying things there's like basically subliminal messages on this record right and it's all done intentionally it's all kind of done to reference like just the idea of that stuff and some of it's like very jokey right like yeah a lot of warp records is like very trolly people being like oh isn't it wouldn't it be funny if our album was 66 minutes and six seconds <laughs> yes which this album is also 66 minutes and six seconds yeah right 
And there's a lot of references. There's other things that I'll get into. I want to read, uh, this is a bit from an interview they did in 2000, actually. Uh, it's December 2000, so maybe about a year before this album came out, because it came out in February 2002. Uh, this is, the world's getting smaller and smaller now, says Marcus. We're all sharing the same clothes, the same magazines, and the same ideas. Everyone's got the same reference points. It's globalization, man. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what Mike said. It's never people who are part of the general flow who make amazing art. Everyone's collectively going down one particular branch of music. I think in the wake of Music Has a Right to Children, their sound already started to be imitated. And apparently they got calls from like big name people who were like, oh, I want to work with you. And they, they wouldn't say who it was, but they said it. Someone was like, oh, was it Radiohead? And they're like, no, we like Radiohead. And they're <laughs> like, so who was it? And they said somewhere between Radiohead and God. <laughs> So I'm, I'm just imagining like Madonna's person calling them or whatever because oh she was God. doing the whole ray of light thing. Around it would them. be because that's like yeah. that's when she started working with like Mirwise, right? It was in 2000. Yeah. Well, like so Ray I, of Light came out in '98, I think. So it's it would have been a perfect kind of thing. But God, one can only dream of the world where Boards of Canada did a Madonna album. Yeah, they very much did not want to do that. They're not no. into that. They're not into the whole trip of fame or really the music industry in general. But they said with the last album, uh, they're talking about music as the right to children. We were too affected by what was going on in that particular moment in history. But the new one is going to be on its own outlandish and unique universe. It's like we're inhabiting an alternative parallel present where maybe someone in the past took a different branch to the way things actually went. I just think that line is so funny because people constantly talk about alternative timelines and like, oh, we're on the bad timeline now. Right. So maybe we're on the GeoGaddy timeline now. That's worth it. It's a good album. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, and this is another quote from Mike where he's talking about the album later. He said, GeoGaddy was kind of exercising demons. And even after we set out to do a record like that, 9-11 happened. He's described it uh, as a, some sort of trial by fire, a claustrophobic twisting journey that takes you into some pretty dark experiences before you reach the open air again. So there's actually like some kind of intended implied narrative to this album in general, which I can see. And it's more so than any of the other albums that they've done. I guess you could theoretically even call it a concept album <laughs> if those words had any meaning. Yeah. The thing with me is I, I feel like oftentimes people say concept album when what they mean is like a holistic work with themes. Yeah. Which I feel like is closer to what this is. Like it's thematically whole in a way that a lot of albums often aren't. And it feels, it has just enough there for you to draw any number of conclusions as we'll talk to about later, but like enough to feel narratively satisfying. And I think a lot of that has to do with like the sequencing. I think this is a really well sequenced album we'll get into. I think it's an album that kind of gets better as it goes along, and it's got these like interludes that are really well-placed. Yeah, so apparently they recorded over 90 tracks for the album. Yeah, I saw that. And this is not unusual for them. Apparently they recorded even more, I think, for the Campfire Head phase. What they said is that the first thing they said is a lot of the things that they recorded are much more of the like smaller snippets, like the one-minute sort of pieces, mm -hmm. than you know, the longer stuff. So like a lot of that stuff is more in that vein. But they also said... There are a lot of things where they record and they'd be like, this just doesn't really fit in the album or this doesn't sound like what we th people would think of as Boards of Canada. 
So I think probably a few of them that they recorded for this or they started working on might have ended up on Campfire Head Phase or one of their later ones. Like they record sort of parallel to where some things that they record much earlier will end up on a much later album. Whereas, you know, something on this album might have been from like literally the end of 2001 or like right as they were finishing it up too. So, right, yeah, they say that the way that they work is very like all over the place. So there is a gazillion, I just made up a word, a gazillion Boards of Canada tracks that have never been released and we might not ever see until like one of them dies, which is sad to say because obviously I don't want either of them to die anytime soon. I want them to put out more music. But... I mean, they might go through like an Aphex Twin thing where they're like eventually get like old enough that they're like, okay, let's just release the back catalog. Yeah, or it would be crazy to hear some of their early like attempts at like shoegaze dream pop stuff. God, I would love that. But yeah, who knows when they'll do it. I mean, there are there are sometimes when they've done like live DJ sets or or you know, they they play things that aren't on any other albums. So you can find like just all over YouTube like mix tapes with like, you know, mixes that people made with like random tracks from that like the one DJ set that they did 20 years ago or you know things like that uh because they generally didn't perform live either I think they've done like a few DJ sets and stuff like that but generally they're pretty much a a, a record based duo an album band yeah an album duo yeah I mean which I think is true of a lot of warp records musicians with the exception of like specifically square pusher I did see Autekar like quote unquote live yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, but the the live is in quotations oh the one thing i was going to say about this is apparently they when they released this album and i think that warp records did this a bunch is they had uh listening parties apparently on the 30th of january 2002 in a bunch of different cities in like a church chapel they even have like on the boards of canada wiki like a little ticket stub from one of them but there was one in New York here where I live apparently, but then they were also in London, Tokyo, Edinburgh, Berlin, Paris. So I don't know, but I just imagining what that would have been like, probably would have been really cool. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Wish I could have gone back in time to go to that or like the, the drugs release party that I think happened around that time too. The same thing for that. It's good mood music to like share in, you know, I'm trying to think about how do we want to go through. Yeah, the album. I mean, we can we can just see what <laughs> I don't know. It's it's hard to talk about like the it's with anything electronic music. It's like hard to talk about the sound and also like I I do want to say, uh, in in the 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 boards of Canada wiki. Uh, entry for GeoGaddy, there's this subsection called themes and it talks about yeah. satanism and the occult and then there's a person's like a person can't listen to a boc disc without feeling something baleful in the music uh, these guys are weirdos from the interviews they've done which doesn't take away from anything that they might accomplish but they are working on a side that I am not on, so it would be deleterious to my soul to listen to influence the grooves they lay down. The evil is blatant. Incredible forum posting. <laughs> what a society. <laughs> Somebody did ask them in an interview. Uh, this is from an interview they did uh, around time of GeoGaddy, and the, this was from 
OOR magazine, which is like a Dutch magazine. It says, Hexagon Stun, the name of your studio. Chris H., a.k.a. Christ, a former band member. Red Moon Nights. Hell Interface, which was the name of their... They did some remixes under that name, Hell Interface, that are pretty Mm -hmm. cool. The Devil is in the Details. 66 minutes and 6 seconds. Artwork full of hexagrams, which, by the way, yeah, the... The Geograti artwork is filled with hexagrams. Um, supposedly subliminal messages. How evil is BOC? Marcus says, as evil as Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, right? These are just guys. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a... <laughs> I don't think that they like being put in that box. There's something to be said for like the kind of mystique you could generate in like the pre-internet days or even like the early internet days when like it wasn't as easy to access who these people were and so like yeah it's absolutely plausible to me a 13 year old that these guys are satanists because i've never heard them speak and all i have about them is this album like which would give me nightmares if i fell asleep listening to it so it is funny because i never thought of this album as being generally like spooky or scary or anything like that maybe like a little unsettling and disturbing it's claustrophobic i think yeah but actually, like, when I was, like, looking through this Boards of Canada wiki and they had a bunch of stuff about... Because there's a lot of, like, reversed, like, back mask track stuff. So I, like, listened to tracks in reverse. And the more that I did that, the more that I actually started to feel a little spooked. <laughs> yeah. So I think it captures what they were going for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's fun to be spooky. <laughs> yep. But yeah, uh, I guess we can get into talking about the tracks. We could even just talk about like highlights, maybe. We don't necessarily need to talk about every song. Yeah, we can. Well, I'll go over, you know, just the order of the tracks and stuff like that. And we can sort of go off of that. But it begins with Ready, Let's Go, which is just like one of those like warbly organ kind of. There's a lot of, like you said, almost nauseous sounding sounds, which is. It's something I also associate with Earthbound, actually, the video game. Yeah, for sure. They had that almost overuse of vibrato, or like vibrato pushed way beyond how it would usually be used. I do that tons in my own music, too, so it's something that I I love. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Listen, it's a good sound. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to like go into this too much, but like with my own music that I've made, it is extremely influenced by Boards of Canada, not in a way where I'm like trying to sound like Boards of Canada most of the time. 
but yeah, like of of almost any electronic artist, I think probably they've been influential to me. I can see that because I guess I am more interested in melody than I am in other stuff and maybe that's also because i like come from you know following indie rock music and stuff (laughs) for sure but yeah this the second track is music is math which that's the first track you heard right yeah it's good like it's it feels i want to say more aggressive than anything on music has the rights of children which isn't quite right i don't think that's the right descriptor but it has like you know it felt more like kid a than music has the rights to children does yeah ominous like organ part that I, I don't know like so much of boards of canada is trying to capture this feeling that can't be described in any sort of verbal way mm-hmm. of just like melancholy or sort of like there's just something like a little bit wrong but it's in a kind of like delicate like wistful sad way and that like the organ part in this like at the, the opening really kind of is perfect encapsulation of that Yeah, unsettling is the perfect word for it because it's just like, it's not ugly, you know? Like these are still like very melodic songs with very soft textures. And there's just this sense of like fragging at the seams to them almost. Like this faintly sinister vibe. It is interesting because, I mean, the more that I like actually like listen to the percussion element i almost never notice it like just when i'm listening casually but you sort of hear like the kinds of things that they're doing and it's like i can sort of see where people get like the idea that this is idm from that but it's just so not really relevant to how like you actually end up feeling and experiencing the thing at least to me i would i would agree i think one a lot of idm is more purposefully off-putting I think maybe the biggest similarity this has to IDM to me is that it feels uncanny Mm -hmm. in a way that not in the same way, but like a lot of IDM feels uncanny in its own way. Like it feels like off in its own way. And this definitely has that feeling to it. I think it's just so much more composed about it. I think what's interesting is there's actually like singing in this, but you don't really process it as singing. I'm pretty sure that's just them singing. There's a lot of like vocoded, I don't even know if autotune was a thing by this point, but. I mean, this was definitely like post believe, but like, I don't think that's what they would be using. I think it was still very much like a pro studio tool where it's a vocoder you can just get. Yeah. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they're using these high quality digital effects, even though they are mostly recording with analog, you know, synthesizers and mm-hmm. samplers and stuff like that. Um, but it doesn't seem like they were adverse to using whatever they needed to use, you know, to to get a certain sound. But yeah, I I just find that interesting because it's like it could be like they just found a sample of some someone go like yelling or something and they vocoded it so it sounds melodic or it could be a sample of just them doing it so and i think they deliberately would mix in like samples from you know lots of media a lot of 70s stuff in particular with just like things that they recorded themselves or things that they recorded their friends saying or doing like apparently they just mix those two together like a lot so Mm -hmm. oh also this track was apparently ranked uh number 384 on pitchfork media's top 500 songs of the 2000s so great i guess that's that's okay that's not necessarily (laughs) it doesn't tell you anything but yeah i don't even think it's the fifth song i would pick off of this album to put on that list (laughs) i guess it's just the first one that they could think of right on this album i will say one thing that's established here and especially in gyroscope is that this album's a lot denser than Music Has the Rights to Children. Yeah. Like, Music Has the Rights to Children is, is fairly spacious, even minimalist at times, but, like, there's always a lot going on in these songs. A lot of samples of, like, there's, like, a back mask sort of reverse, like, sample of people, like, laughing or something towards the end that gets more and more intense, like... Right. Or it sounds like laughing. I have no idea what it actually is. There's like one part where there's a voice that you can barely hear where (laughs) the wiki says it either says purple or be careful. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I don't know what it actually says, but it definitely says something. And then, of course, the past inside the present, which is almost like a thesis statement in Music is Math for like Boards of Canada in general. Like, if you think about, like, this idea of, like, when you're a child, you experience things a certain way that you're not able to experience, like, at a certain point when you're an adult. But in a lot of ways, you're kind of still re-experiencing those things, even as an adult, like, without even really realizing that, if that makes sense. Your previous, like, experiences or memories are being reflected back in the present in some, like, new form, like, especially, like, in dreams or whatever. I think that's kind of an idea that I've thought about a lot just in general, but I think it's something that they deal with explicitly, like, in their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, the next track is Beware the Friendly Stranger. I have a friend who said that this is how they got exposed to Boards of Canada because this was in Salad Fingers. Do you remember Salad Fingers? Yes, I do remember. I remember hearing this in Salad Fingers, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a fucking Ots artifact right there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the title is self-explanatory. I mean, it's like a PSA about child predators, really. I mean, that's 
seems to be a pretty clear like reference to that like that phrase mm-hmm. oh yeah it's like a 50s um which also is kind of like <laughs> kind of goes into this like sense of uh we should engender paranoia in communities and mistrust of anyone who is nice <laughs> right uh it's kind of a weird interlude uh it's one of those things where i don't know if it's like reversed or or not what makes me think it is is how it leads into gyroscope which definitely has kind of a reversed thing going on yeah gyroscope is an interesting track because it's actually one that marcus owen said something about interviewer from hmv magazine says can you recall one standout moment during the process of recording this record that was completely fulfilling from a creative standpoint and marcus said yeah for me it would be the track gyroscope i dreamed the sound of it And although I've recreated dreamt songs before, I managed to do that one so quickly that the end result was 99% like my dream. It spooks me to listen to it now. So yeah, we're listening to Marcus Owen's subconscious, I guess. It is texturally really interesting, like, and well done. It sounds like a gyroscope. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. kind of swirly and scrapey and a little nauseating again yeah there's the the one distorted drum pattern that's just the same pattern repeated over and over again it's just and it just does that over and over again but then almost everything almost all the synths like seem to be backwards Mm -hmm. so it's another thing where if you reverse the track it sounds completely different like you can hear maybe a melody that you don't hear because you don't it's harder to perceive like melodies when something is being played backwards like that This also goes with the whole math theme of the album. I mean, from music is math to like the all of the the album cover has like hexagrams all over it. It's like even the art that like you open it up, it's, it's like fractally. Yeah, it's all yeah. it's very fractally, and it's like pictures of children or just like it's so abstract. You kind of like you can kind of extrapolate your own. It's so open to interpretation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this is the one that has the numbers station audio in it too. I forgot about that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's again, it's stuff like that. It's so hard for me to place because I just like I know it's in the album, but I can't always say which song it's in. <laughs> yeah, it says apparently the recording was gifted by Sean Booth of Audiker, who, by the way, Sean Booth is who originally quote unquote discovered them, or at least like found one of their releases and originally put it out on his label Scam Records. Oh well. <laughs> um, which is how I think they ended up on Warp. So yeah, they're definitely connected to Audiker. They're kind of like a weird like yin and yang with Audiker. Audiker is like the the heavy, squelchy, experimental, right, <laughs> non melodic side to their. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, it's it's funny because it's like w- this is the second album we've talked about with Number Station like playing a part. <laughs> 
Right. Yep. Although, like, with a different intent, right? Yeah. Like, I think Wilco's trying to get into the, like, switching between stations quality of it. And I think Boards of Canada is trying to, again, tap into sort of the uncanny, like, conspiracy side of it. Mm -hmm. The voice sounds, it sounds like a young, like, woman. But I, I have a feeling that it's, they heavily modified it. And the original audio doesn't really sound that way. But it sounds like someone who's almost, like, excited. It's, it has a very strange, like, uncanny sound to it it's going to be hard to avoid that descriptor because so much of this album is (laughs) familiar sounds being warped funny too because uh i know wilco got sued for like sampling the number station but i'm sure Audiker, i'm sure sean booth had his sources to where he got it to where they didn't have to worry about that well you got to distort it enough right yeah i suppose they just put it in there there's no fair use in that that's true no transformative value that's true but speaking of probably one of the most well-known samples of this is in dandelion which is leslie nielsen narrating uh, Dive to the Edge of Creation, which was a National Geographic documentary from 1979. And that's what the wind lava pours out near the sea surface. Tremendous volcanic explosions can sometimes occur. Oh my gosh. That's Leslie Nielsen's voice from Naked Gun. It sounded so familiar. That's amazing. When lava pours out near the sea surface, tremendous volcanic explosions sometimes occur. submarine sea mounts or islands are formed. A new contraption to capture a dandelion in one piece has been put together by the crew. The preparation for a dive is always a tense time. But once the sub starts down, the crew, Ballard, Giddings, and pilot Ralph Hollis, can allow themselves a few moments to relax. And this is another one, if you reverse it, you will hear a different melody. It's a melody that sounds like it could be on, like music has a right to children or something. It sounds a little more wistful than when, when it's played backwards. Yeah, interesting. (laughs) It's a cool sample and like probably one of the things that when I was telling my friend about doing this episode, uh, I was like, I have read so many Boards of Canada interviews in the past few days. And he said, the preparation for a dive is always a tense time. (laughs) Wonderful. Very good. (laughs) Very well done. (laughs) The next track is Sunshine Recorder. This is where I start to mix together what the tracks are. That, that's another like heavily backwards one. Yeah. The beginning sound is it's like a organ 
a very nauseated sound. I'm trying to remember. Oh, this is the one. This is a weird bit of trivia that is actually true and isn't just a thing that the Boards of Canada wiki made up. But there is a synth melody, the part that it goes... It's, it's two minutes and 49 seconds into the song. It has like a high register, but apparently it's almost the same or if not the, the exact same melody from Turquoise Hexagon Sun from Oh yeah, Music Has a Right to Children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not surprising that they would reference themselves in that way, but... And this also has the sample, the, A Beautiful Place, which goes back to the beautiful place out in the country from mm-hmm. the previous album and their whole fixation with Waco and the Branch Davidians. Although apparently that sample is actually from a Sesame Street <laughs> episode. The person saying A Beautiful Place. Wonderful. Beautiful Place. Place. A canyon is a beautiful place. The same with the bye 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 is also from a Sesame Street thing. Bye, 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 bye. Well, we went outside of outside to play now. Hope all the different news have fun too. Bye. 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 Goodbye. This is one of the longer tracks. It's heavier on percussion. There is a lot of like sort of reverse like stabs of the percussion. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. There's a lot of weird reversed uh, vocals in this one too that you can't make out anything they're saying. They're like high pitched, like chopped up severely, like, and they just sound like alien sounds. They're like, meow, 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 meow. they just sound like that. Yeah. This has a similar thing of. There's like theoretically a melody, but for how like hyper the the beats are, it's so like languid mm-hmm. to a point where again, it's the uncanny feeling. It feels like it's moving much slower than everything else. Yeah, yeah. Which is is kind of like it's unsettling. <laughs> it is. It's not one of my favorites. Again, I think this is this album like starts kind of slow. It does, yeah. And really moody. And then like I feel like from like in the annex on, it kind of ramps up. Well, ramps up. I think it, it gets kind of better and better. Like in the annex, I think it's just a pretty interlude. But Julian Candy, I think, is a wonderful song. Yeah, in the annex, right after is one of the just intermission tracks, and it is another one of those like it's just like an organ sound, but it's the pitch is going sort of in and out of key like it's has that similar sort of nauseated sound it's really nice though i mean again the interludes on this album are fantastic absolutely yeah
probably the the most distinctive and interesting thing about this album are a lot of the interlude tracks. For sure, yeah. I think because some of the longer songs stretch the ideas too far. It's true. I mean, they you sort of zone out to them. When we get to it, I think Alpha and Omega could definitely be shorter. But yeah, but yeah, it, it is a vibe. It's a vibey album. It, you're not. You're there to kind of just get lost in it. But the next track is Julian Candy, and apparently the name is a reference, or at least this is what they've gathered to an adult film that they sampled in some of their other work. There's uh, there were two characters named Julian Candy in that movie. Oh, and I should say that like almost all of their titles come from something or are a reference to something. Like the famous example, Pete Standing Alone, is actually the name of a person in like the actual boards film boards of canada specials they did they followed a man who was i can't remember what tribe he was part of but his name is pete standing alone my name is standing alone pete standing alone i live on the blood indian reservation in southwestern alberta the same with Ammo Bishop Roden, who was a, a Branch Davidian, uh, but we can talk about her when we talk about 1969. But yeah, the other thing I find interesting is this song has a sample from a George A. Romero film, uh, Season of the Witch, and people found the sample, and it's pretty fun because I like, you know, you can hear it, people talking and throughout the track, but like I always thought the woman's like, you can hear a woman saying, yeah, he's putting you on, he's a brat. But I always thought she said, I'm depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can put in a clip, though, of the actual audio, like, next to it in the song of what it says. You're putting me on. We're going to try it. You ever try it? You're putting me on. I'm turning you on. You're putting me on. Where'd you get that stuff? Oh, Mickey's growing a patch out in the backyard. Come on, you're putting me yeah, on. Yeah, he's putting you on. He's a brat. Oh, goes the like juxtaposition where they'll like use stuff from horror films or adult films but they'll also use like a lot of stuff from like sesame street or nature documentaries or things that are very harmless seeming and they're kind of mixed together in a way to where you wouldn't really tell the difference of where they came from you know right Oh, the other interesting thing about this track, actually, this has an interesting musical. They did talk about this, how this was constructed. So the main melody is them playing recorders and flutes. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And what they did, uh, this is from a quote from them. They said, we don't like using digital things or computer effects. So we get sounds by doing things like running whole parts through a really bad tape recorder or something like that. Like the intro on Julian Candy, for example, we played the melody on a couple of whistles and then bounced it back and forward between the internal mics of two tape decks until the sound started disappearing into hell. Like when you look at an image reflected within two mirrors forever, in the distance it gets darker and greener and murkier. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. But it like reflects the whole mathematical idea of the album. It's an extremely cool idea for them to do a...
I think Julian Candy is like definitely one of my favorites. I think I love the way it goes in the smallest weird number, which has a similar sense of decay to it. Because like smallest weird number is like a melody that starts very pretty and then starts falling out of key and then comes back again. Mm-hmm. So it kind of carries that forward. Both Julian Candy and smallest weird number kind of have a higher up like flute. Mm-hmm sound going on it because earlier in the album we were getting like low organ tones or something like a little more droning and these are a little more like weird like energetic flute tones but yeah It definitely feels like it's a tape being messed with. Yeah, it's like different parts of a melody, sort of like a section of like five seconds right up against another one with sort of just like, isn't an interesting, again, uncanny sound, but the smallest weird number is a thing and the smallest weird number is 70 and uh, the actual melody of this track goes on for 70 seconds, so. Oh, well. Yeah. (laughs) Music is math. Yeah. They did stuff like this on the the album. There's another one in, I think, Alpha and Omega, where there's a person saying yellow <laughs> just randomly in the middle of the track. And apparently that is is at the golden ratio point of the album or something. I don't know. I wouldn't hold it past them for them to do this, but I just want to mention this. Apparently they sampled something from the Incredible String Band because they were very obsessed with the Incredible String Band, like the Psych Band fellow, I think they're also from Scotland. So the Incredible String Band comes up kind of again and again in their sort of mythos. then that goes into 1969 which i think is like the critical consensus like the most pop song on the album yeah i think it's the best of the long tracks on the album but yeah 1969 this is the track that i would listen to probably the most on its own of any of the tracks it does stand up without the context of the album although i will say it's also the song that sounds the most like a warp record to me the chord progression sounds very warpy which i don't know how to define because i don't know music theory well enough Mm. but like those first two chords specifically feel like an interval that sounds like warp records to me is a little more straight although it has that like uh, arpeggiated line which is probably my favorite part of the song uh, that goes along with the beat Mm -hmm. I can obviously put in a clip of it (laughs) 
But then there's also the sample literally from an interview of this woman, Ammo Bishop Roden, who the song Ammo Bishop Roden from uh, In a Beautiful Place Out in the Country is named after. Um, and it's a woman saying, Ammo Bishop Roden lives on the compound in Waco today. Although not a follower of David Koresh, she is a devoted Branch Davidian. And then it's vocoded in this song. So it, yeah, that's the vocal line. It says, although not a follower of David Koresh. Although not a follower of David But the David Koresh part is reversed, mm-hmm. so you can't, it doesn't sound like David Koresh. But yeah, that's the, the vocal hook, along with a woman saying 1969 in the sunshine. Right. <laughs> So obviously, Ammo Bishop Roden, who the voice is talking about, was was a member of the Branch Davidians, and she was married to George Roden, who was uh, a leader of another Branch Davidian sect and like split off from David Koresh. So she was not in the whole, you know, compound when it got, you know... I mean, look up the story of Branch Davidians, but I, I don't really want to get into it too much here. But it is something that the Boards of Canada, I think, is interested in, just both cults and, and the way that the American government responded to them yeah. with uh, intense violence. As we do. Yeah. The line 1969 in the sunshine, I don't think is a any kind of reference to the Branch Davidians, but they said in one of their interviews, and I think this is interesting because, I don't know, it's just kind of a, a point of fascination of me like i read the whole fucking book the book chaos charles manson the cia and the secret history of the 60s by tom o'neill uh came out in 2019 (laughs) i did not pay attention to that oh goodness uh i read that whole fucking book uh but you know i used to live in california that whole idea of you know this like lost innocence of the 60s and particularly the end of the 60s and you know the whole like give me shelter freaking rolling stones concert where the guy got killed or the the manson family or everything else that sort of happened what one of the members of boards of canada describes basically with regards to the song and they said it's a manifestation of the era of innocence love and peace that was at the heart of the era but it was also laced with the various fears going into the future such as the cold war and nuclear threats and i thought about conveying a kind of strong additive sensation of neurosis that had been popularized in our culture since the 1970s government publicity movies electromagnetic there is the sense of helplessness for the future generation so certainly something that is <laughs> come back that sense of helplessness but yeah as far as i can tell it's never gone away every generation just has their own yeah but i mean if you look at the end of the 90s and like the point immediately before 9-11 there was that kind of like techno optimism oh yeah the end of history yeah yeah, this whole idea of the end of history. And then, you know, 9-11 happened and we sort of helped put things on the course that we're on today. So, yeah. but I think the point is that, like, I think there is something a little bit eternal about those feelings and sentiments that aren't just attached to a particular era. But it is interesting to think about the way that it sort of comes in and out of vogue. Like, even in, like, the 2010s, there was, like, a, a very futurist element of pop music you know if you look at sophie or arca or you know Mm -hmm. that is very like technological and going for this like 
powerful, innovative sound design. Um, these kind of trends always come in and out of futurism versus like this kind of retro trends. But I think one of the reasons why Boards of Canada doesn't sound like it, any particular era to me is because so much of this is like stuff that they were doing kind of regardless of what era it is, you know. Anything else to say about 1969? Other than the warp chords? Yeah, no, I like it. Definitely, it's a good centerpiece. Again, it's a good track. This album has a really strong middle, which I feel like is a rarity in the world. Yeah, that is a very rare thing. Usually it's strong endings or strong beginnings, but not strong middles. Right, and a saggy middle. But the middle here is, is really well done. You know, it's where all the, the most melodic songs are. And it feels purposeful in a way that other songs are willing to kind of just dwell in themselves. Yeah, just the combo of that very unnerving sounding pad organ with the more like up there, like futury sounding, like arpeggiated synth with the like vocoded vocal line and the more like conventional, a little bit like warp tight beat. I think just the combo of elements like really works in particular in that song, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the next track is Energy Warning. Were you ever, did you know anybody who was a member of 4-H? Oh yeah, I'm from Texas. <laughs> Absolutely. What I can tell you as somebody who was never in it, but just observing it, it seemed very farm oriented. <laughs> I was actually a member of 4-H, so we did like projects the website says positive youth development and mentoring organization. So uh, what does 4-H actually stand for? <laughs> oh, head, heart, hands, and health. Oof. There we go. I remember having to say that at the beginning of our 4-H meetings, actually. I'm so sorry, Liz. But we had projects of to like learn something new. And the one that I did was like baking with my mom. So like making bread and cookies. So I remember doing that. Mm-hmm. And we had to like present our projects, but that was 4-H. But yeah, this is a... This is about energy. Energy is becoming one of our country's greatest concerns. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we our world is yet to heed that warning <laughs> as things get worse in terms of climate change. So this is a quote, by the way, from one of the members of Boards of Canada. He says, uh, this was in Buzz Magazine, which was like a Japanese magazine. So this was actually translated. Someone said, how would you describe the message conveyed by energy warning? He said... It is effectively sounding a warning as to the depletion of natural energy resources. The message, however, is usually secondary to the musical content. But yeah, anyway, this has kind of like a warbly, like, yeah, it's sampled from a a documentary called The Falls. The sound at the very beginning, it sounds like river or something like that. It's a very like watery sound. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, then we have the beach at Red Point, which again, very watery sound at the beginning because it's talking about a beach. It's another extremely textural song. It feels like gyroscope that way. This also has the very unnerving dystopian pads. (laughs) Somebody on the boards of Canada, Reddit, went to, there's a place called Red Point in Scotland. Uh, They went to there and took pictures and there's apparently a beach there too. So 
it's potentially a reference to that. I can actually paste the uh, Imgur album of their pictures, but yeah. <laughs> Ooh, seems nice. Yeah. I'm sure it's like something that Boards of Canada has like a specific relationship with, although it, it also just sounds like a lot of their titles are evocative regardless of if you like know what it's referencing. Right. I think they're kind of being uncanny in the same way that like, you know, the music is trying to be uncanny. Yeah, I think so too. It's definitely like, you know, sometimes you just make something you're like, this would be a cool title. It kind of feels like that. Yeah. This one goes into the next track very well. It yeah. has like an interesting, over time, there are voices that like these breathing sort of shouting voices that pulse in and out and become more and more intense. And then it goes into the next track of this like breathing sound uh, in yeah, opening, opening the mouth. The mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they have a sample, which I think is from, it's from a release by Jorge Reyes and Antonio Zepeda. Zepeda. A la izquierda del colibrí por Jorge Reyes et Antonio Zepeda. I don't know, I could put a link to it. It's an album from 1986, but yeah, uh, apparently they sample that. So it's funny because like most musical elements of the songs, they do not sample. Right. Uh, it's stuff that they deliberately make usually with hi-fi sources and then they kind of intentionally degrade and even like the drum sounds like a lot of those sounds are sometimes it's just them playing drums there are some tracks where they just straight up played drums on them but a lot of the times mike sanderson said that he would just go around with like a dat recorder and just hit random things in the environment with like a drumstick and then they would just use those sounds all the time classic technique yeah yeah so that is where they get a lot of their percussion sounds it's a fun thing to do honestly like i just want to say overall reading the interviews with them was they seem like very centered and and nice guys who like think very deeply about their music Mm -hmm. and sort of its relationship with the world and it was very encouraging because it made me be like, oh, I should just start sampling random stuff and putting those sounds in. Because it's true, like, making electronic music, like, the more that you're attached to specific sounds that you use, the more that you want to, like, use them in some way. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, expansive VST sample sets, whatever. So I don't know. I mean, it was kind of encouraging 
to read about that because it's like you know stuff that they were doing 20 years ago but still sounds good now Mm -hmm. yeah and then speaking of percussion so then we have alpha yeah then we get to the tabla song tabla which is how i always think of it yeah is it a tabla yeah that's what it sounds like to me i guess i don't know for sure yeah you're probably right actually played tabla before but it's been a long time oh we had like a college you could take like a one credit class so i took the the one credit class to play tabla <laughs> i mean that's not a bad use of college yeah it's this is a song that i think is definitely too long especially for where it comes in the album mm. but like i guess it kind of feels like it come down from the midsection to me before we get into a very kind of ethereal last chunk well yeah they talk about this album almost being like a journey i think this is the track that feels the most like a journey you know if you think of like (laughs) you're wandering an environment in like zelda and breath of the wild or something and there's a point that is like particularly intense where there's like combat happening or or the drama has escalated this sort of feels like you're moving through that phase of it for sure yeah i could see that yeah, sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, you're. this is the longest track. I guess the fact that it's named Alpha and Omega, obviously those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It has this very like religious and very like big universe cosmic i guess is what i is what i meant terminology but yeah there's some interesting samples in here so my friend was very excited that we were covering this album and messaged me about it and then they said this all prompted me to listen to geogaddy for what must be the 300th time i just noticed a voice saying yellow in the middle of alpha and omega for the first time ever (laughs) what the fuck this album is really hexed randomly in the middle of the song there's a woman's voice saying yellow yeah there's a lot going on in these tracks like there's definitely stuff you can overlook i think personally it's a reference to uh one of their most famous tracks which was aquarius (laughs) where the person says orange Orange. apparently they said in interviews that people would just say orange at them all the time <laughs> like they just wanted to have a different vocabulary. Yeah, I think that's why they put the yellow in there. <laughs> yes. This one also it literally does have a man talking about satanism as a backmask thing. There's a voice uh you can only hear it faintly but if you do it in reverse he says I'm no satanist but if I were I'd be in this business too. <laughs> <laughs> Satanist, but if I were, I'd be in this business too. Let's face it, Satan sucks. And apparently, it's from a documentary called Mysteries, Magic, and Miracles. The documentary is called World of Satanism, but yeah. <laughs> it's a very good, that's a very good quote. I think that's so funny. So, the next track is I Saw Drones, just a short interlude. It's another one that if you play reverse, it just sounds like something that would be on like one of their early releases. Oh, yeah. I could see that. 
it's a very simple melody. I think they it was completely right that they <laughs> reversed it because it actually I think it sounds better reversed in this case. But there are tracks like Dandelion where playing it backwards is like a different experience, but not a worse one. They're just kind of two different experiences, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really interesting thing about this album is that you can do that in so many tracks. But the next track is The Devil Is In The Details. And I think this was my favorite track when I first heard the album. Oh, yeah. I really, really like Devil Is In The Details. A lot of it is the sample. I don't... I'm going to guess that it's from like some like meditation tape. Here's how you meditate and, you know, they're explaining, you know, the usual stuff that you would if you bought a tape where it's kind of like just easing you into the process. But it has a a very unnerving quality to it because the way that they processed it, they have that child's voice going, which is like perfect. It's a very like. There's almost an ASMR quality to it with like these specific like scratchy weird textures going on around it. I love the way that they will sample children's voices, but then like make the pitches just do really strange things. And I think that is a perfect example because it sounds so uncanny and unsettling. And also like this is pretty minimal in terms of the actual quote unquote melody line. Supposedly the riff was designed they said to imitate a specific well-known equation but in musical terms okay people think that this references the golden ratio so i'm not sure in what way but i wouldn't be surprised yeah why not it does have kind of a yeah it's not a melody that you would write just on your own there's something kind of strange about it but yeah the appeal is really the narration it's possible that they could have had one of their friends read this off too like that they just straight up wrote the the lines and i think there are at least some samples that they've used that they've had just friends record or whatever and you know mixes in with everything else so but yeah great track and then right after is my favorite intermission track holy shit a is to be a is to be as b is to c holy crap what even say about this is a fucking crazy track it's very much a head trip it's i'm just listening to it right now there's so much to parse around with it there's so many like weird threads going through it yeah i yeah i don't know how to necessarily describe it i mean you you were the one like the vocal line is actually like slowed down, right? There's a bunch of different things going on. Oh yeah, there's the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine town. Now in Spanish, then in French, we'll say that twice again. It's a song called Languages We Speak by Sarah Barchas, but it sounds completely, it's just like a folk song. It sounds completely different in the song. The way it's slowed down, it sounds like a man saying it and it has a completely different like timbre tombra to it tombra. <laughs> i never know how to pronounce that word no it's fine one two three four five six seven eight nine ten now in spanish then in french we'll say that twice again one two three four five six seven eight nine ten now in spanish then in french we'll say that twice again 
Yeah, and then uh, at the beginning, there's actually a reverse, and you can hear this if you reverse it. Uh, there is an interview. It's a guy saying, I don't know, mixed feelings. I still got him. I still dream about him. I don't know. I just wish it had never happened. <laughs> I don't know, mixed feelings. I still got him. I still dream about him. I don't know. I just wish it had never happened. I just wish he would have listened to me. I It's a dude talking about murdering a cop while he was in jail. It's like pretty dark, which is funny because it's like, you know, like there was apparently like, and I think this even says this in the wiki somewhere. I can't remember what track where someone's like, oh, you can hear a sample of a child screaming or whatever. And there's an interview where I think they were particularly sensitive to this because I think they deliberately didn't want to do anything like that, you know? And I think Michael said something like, we read in some place that someone thought that the sample was a child screaming, but it was literally just a cymbal sound. <laughs> so it's really easy to read into that. But So there's that. But then there's also my one of my favorite samples, the I'll be gone in about a week. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I bought... That's also from Season of the Witch. I should watch Season of the Witch. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, like, the weird sounds that come right before that are actually just straight up from the movie because the guy says it, like, right after a dream sequence happens. So now it really made me want to see this movie. Yeah, we should. Well, we'll have a special Kitchfork bonus episode on Season of the Witch. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be gone about a week. Oh, oh, by, by the way, way, I brought her pillow. I'll be gone about a week. Oh, by the way, I brought her Maybe we could combine, like, a few a cinema of, like, a few things into one episode. We could do a whole episode or something. Yeah, we'll do this. We'll do the Suspiria soundtrack. We'll do... Um... Oh, yeah. Garden State. <laughs> we should. Yeah, we probably should do that actually sometime, even as much as I don't want to. No, but it's our future. It's it's inevitable. It is. It's inevitable. Uh, this also, uh, if you play it in reverse, this is a perfect one. It has the trolliest message of all, which is them saying, we love you all. <laughs> they're, they're as evil as Mickey Mouse, you know? I get it. <laughs> I think that's the trolliest one. But then there's they also sample the teddy bear's picnic. If you go out in the woods today, you better not go alone. Right. Did you ever hear the teddy bear's picnic as a kid? Oh, absolutely. All the time. Okay. And yeah, yeah, it sticks out. But yeah... So many different samples. It's crazy in this one. Uh, this was also Boards of Canada like gets their stuff used a lot in like TV and like mm -hmm. sometimes in advertising. And salad fingers. And, yeah. This particular track got used in this show called Nathan Barley, which was like a short lived series that is like a perfect sort of lampooning of like vice media like hipster culture in the 2000s i feel like maybe we should watch that for the the show as well sometime because that sounds it's yeah. so good i'm down trash bag don't cook 
Check out the website, eh? It's well fucking futile. So what's interesting, so if that's your favorite interlude, my favorite interlude is the next one. Okay. Over the Horizon Radar. I think because of how it's sequenced in the album where it feels like coming up for air. Mm. You know, it's like, like I think if I, if I isolated the song, it would be kind of pretty, but also not super substantive. But placed where it is in the album, which is like after a couple of very like texturally unsettling songs, it feels like there's almost there's a great sense of relief to it Mm -hmm. perfect placement Mm -hmm. they put it after the absolute craziest track on the album exactly and like again i i can't say it enough this album is sequenced impeccably well And a lot of, I think, the narrative that people read into the album is because of that pacing and because of the thematic threads that occur from just sequencing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, it does. It feels like a narrative arc to come from A is to B is B is to C into Over the Horizon Radar into Dawn Chorus. Like this, it feels there is a paced arc there, intentional or not, and that the sequencing really brings out. Yeah. And Dawn Chorus does have a sound of like you're trying to take on the elements or like there's a little bit of positive energy kind of infusing it, mm. but it, it is still like unnerving, but it has uh, kind of has the sun is setting kind of uh, feeling to it. It's hard to put into words. Sun is setting is like a really, I kind of get the same image as well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and there's the weird sample of the like the ah or the ah, which again are just random samples of children saying words that they just uh, kind of messed up to. I can't imagine how terrifying it would be to go through the tape collection of these two brothers. (laughs) Just a lot of children screaming. (laughs) No, it's just like they found the samples and it was just a child saying a word normally. Right. It, like a lot of the samples are just like normal sounding things that they have, you know, completely messed with to the, to the point where it's unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Which is, again, I mean, it's it's not new, right? Plunderphonics predates this by decades, but there is a very musical way they go about it mm-hmm. where they treat it as like another texture with which to compose a melody that... I think really is what really separates Boards of Canada from that general aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Oh, this has another uh, a sample from a Wiccan summer solstice ritual filmed uh, of a part of a BBC Channel 4 thing called Desperately Seeking Something. Uh, there's a voice that says, And we will marry you to the people, that you may be theirs in death and in life. Oh, my God. 
there you go well it's so funny because like i don't know why i think about this in particular but like there's so much like mixtape hip-hop music from the 2010s that has some pretty lazy sampling where they just straight up will put a song in there and then just rap over it right um including a boards of canada track uh from this album was sampled in that way i think it was um i mean that's generally like what a mixtape is right it's a low effort we're just gonna put the song under this yeah i just have a lot a lot more admiration for what they did in terms of the sampling because some of the it's so creative and they did so much to it oh yeah oh i think it's a little b how am i around this water how did i get here something fearless has captured me i'm a leader where's the faculty so yeah that's that's don course i also it has a, a higher like melodic line it's a little bit more like you know some of the melody lines have been uh kind of uncanny or out of step whereas this feels like a little bit more like it's it's in step this one almost feels like like zero seven what's zero or seven? like air oh okay you know it has that sort of space age lounge vibe yeah i could see that but it's but it's like warbly and distorted yeah yeah yeah. it's not like a straight putt of that but it's definitely it feels like it's almost making fun of it a little bit yeah i could see that but yeah the next track is diving station and this is from an interview michael sanderson said this is a song i clearly wanted to express as a bittersweet or something that on the surface is comfortable but has an ominous feel beneath that contrast of emotion is something we focus heavily on nothing is ever polarized to either positive or negative again perfect thesis statement for boards of canada for sure this although this song is one of the most directly unsettling yeah because it's just a piano riff that seems perfectly fine but then there's a very like weird ominous like akira yamaoka synth noise yeah we have you could feel the sky this is like you would think of in the narrative of the album we had something like don chorus is a little bit getting you into like a little bit more like optimism or it's kind of like wrapping up the album or like over the horizon radar is kind of recuperating you but this is actually pretty unnerving track yeah which i think works i think if it just kind of coasted on an optimistic vibe those songs would feel again less like a kind of coming up for air before being dragged back down Mm -hmm. you know like again i think there's a narrative to like over the horizon radar and don chorus being very pretty and melodic and then diving station being a melodic line being overtaken by synth noise and then you could feel the sky which has a sort of like sinister trip hop vibe yeah this is heavier on the beats there's like a weird i don't know like a squelchy sound it's 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 hard to place it's like something being squeezed, like it's like something rubber being squeezed or something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
But then you have like sounds that almost sound like it's like voice sounds like some kind of choir sample sounds but it sounds like it, it's being like like cd skipping or whatever like it's being edited like chopped up in a very strange way there's also there is a backmasked voice in this one saying a god with horns uh i did listen for it and i i could hear it so the boards of canada wiki isn't making that one up dreams of a god with horns and knows no other king and the oak tree still dreams of a god with horns i find it so funny because it is again like trolling like obviously people talk about like devil music or whatever like they're clearly doing it as a reference to that and kind of like playing off those archetypes but it is funny like when you actually hear the track and it's like yeah there is a voice saying a god with horns in it yeah well I, you know the, the thing is it's a reference to homestuck not satan oh okay yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> we got we got salad fingers and and we got homestuck <laughs> Homestu- we've got the whole early aughts wrapped up in a bag this does have like the higher this does have some music has a right to children kind of sounds in it but it's like like pastoral sounds but they're oh yeah buried yeah. behind everything yeah it almost feels to some degree you can hear a transition from music has the rights to beautiful place out in the country to this and i think this is a song where you can really like kind of have that out yep Uh, and then we have Corsair, which is really kind of the last like proper track on this album. Right. It's just like a slow fading organ that kind of fades in and out. And it really just serves as the end of like this trip. Uh, you can sort of see it as being kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, it's good. It's kind of, it feels almost like being exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> which again is appropriate for where it comes in. It's sort of you collapsing. Although I do think they did a slightly better job with Farewell Fire at the end of the Campfire Head phase. It does a similar thing. Yes. And again, if, if we have an official statement on anything, it's that Campfire Head phase is underrated and very good. Yeah. But yeah. And then you have Magic Window, which is one minute and 44 seconds of nothing. Mm-hmm. In order to get it to that 666 mark. Yeah. Which, you know, you got to respect. Yeah. You got to respect. Uh, and if you have the Japanese version, uh, there's a, a bonus track called From One Source, All Things Depend, which is an interview with children talking about God. And I actually think it's a great ending to the album. When I first 
heard this album it was mp3s i downloaded so i had this version so ah uh, yeah it's like a very nice pretty organ and it's children it's from a a record called how to record sound of children uh, it's actually like this these voices were in a grand funk railroad song like it's the same thing as sampled in a grand funk railroad song which is bizarre <laughs> okay and if you bid you'll die when you die and if you bid you'll die when you die and if you bid you'll die when you die I mean, you have those things that are like constant samples, right? Yeah. Like that one, um, who's that priest's apology sermon that gets sampled all the time? Oh. Oh my God. I'm, I'm going to look this up because I'm going to go crazy. Was thinking. it Jimmy Swagger? Was yeah, it Jimmy Swagger. I have sinned. Yes. Jimmy Swa- the Jimmy Swagger apology, oh, which okay. is in like every industrial song ever made. Uh, yeah. I have sinned against you, my Lord. And I would ask that your precious blood. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, anyway, a, a very touching little, you can hear kids talking about God. In any case, uh, that is GeoGaddy. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about the Pitchfork review. Honestly, not much to talk about. No, it's it's depressingly normal. Although, whenever we come back to Boards of Canada, the Twoism review is batshit nuts. Yeah. Do you want to read just from like maybe the first paragraph of... Of the Tuism review or G- GeoGaddy? No, of the GeoGaddy review. Oh, sure. Yeah, let me pull it up real quick. Yeah, here's your, your story time. It's a bit of a stretch, but a while ago, I compared Boards of Canada's seminal Music Has the Right to Children with Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. I wasn't saying anything about the similarity or relative quality of the actual music, of course. I was just making an observation about how each album has a remarkably wide appeal that stretches beyond fans of its respective genre, while simultaneously carrying great weight with more experienced and discerning listeners. Because of this dual nature, both records are considered ideal first purchases for those curious about the musical world they come from. Comparison fails in other respects, but there's no doubting the consensus of opinion that is formed around these records. You know, going on, it kind of shows like, you know, he mentions how it's been four long years since this last album. And it's kind of funny to me because four years just doesn't feel very long anymore. But at the time, it felt like an eternity. No. And it's been nine years since they've released an album. Yeah, exactly. I I don't know. What a pointless and defensive opening of a review like defending something earlier that you said i don't know it's just like it's a very normal review it doesn't really go anywhere it's like oh it's a lot like it does the same thing every other review does which is like it's a lot like music has the right to children but darker yeah which isn't wrong but i don't think is enlightening in any way it's just hard to talk about electric. I think electronic music has honestly always struggled with critics right. who are not good about writing about stuff. I'd certainly, uh, our friend... Chris Gow? No, uh, Simon Reynolds, uh, ah. our other friends. Certainly Simon Reynolds has written a lot about electronic music. He had an article, Why Boards of Canada's Music Has the Right to Children is the Greatest Psychedelic Album of the 90s. And it's like, I don't know. I think that headline is strange because it's like, okay, (laughs) you know, like that just seems like a a weird, that's not really something that needs 
defending or like an important angle but yeah but uh simon reynolds is someone along with mark fisher rip mark fisher heavily kind of used the term hauntology yeah which is like adapted from jacques derrida um i think the the hauntology angle i mean i can read what simon reynolds says here specifically with regards to that and boards of canada he says among the many common concerns, a nostalgic fascination for television stands out as a major connection. During the 70s especially, children's TV programming in the UK featured a peculiar preponderance of ghost stories, tales of the uncanny, and apocalyptic scenarios. In between this creepy fair, young eyes were regularly assaulted by public information films, a genre of short British programs made for TV broadcast and ostensibly designed to educate and advise, but which often seemed to be scripted and directed by child-hating sadists, whose true goal was to increase the nightmares in bedwetting. Featuring the macabre voiceover tones of actor Donald Pleasance, the spirit and the dark of lonely water, for instance, warned of the dangers of ponds and lakes, uh, while another documentary called Apaches showed in grisly detail what might befall a bunch of kids messing about in a farmyard. He's talking about hauntology in the context of like this unnerving, half-remembered sensibility from the 70s that is being redigested in their music. Um, um, it's often talked about in the context of The Caretaker as well, mm-hmm. which sort of became its weird meme or burial. Things that kind of heavily call upon like cultural touchstones evoke feelings of like retrofuturism or old technology. I don't know. Like hauntology has also been used to describe things like David Lynch's M- Inland Empire or... right. Simon Reynolds has also described it as kind of like this feeling of a lost utopianism, <laughs> which I think in the UK probably was particularly strong in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Things were crumbling. <laughs> the British Empire was crumbling at that point. So that probably goes into the the general feeling. Yeah, I think Simon Reynolds has some interesting things to say about electronic music, but then there are other things that he writes, like that fucking Conceptronica piece, which, I don't know. Did you ever read that <laughs> Conceptronica? Okay. No. He wrote a piece in 2019, like, defining this term as Conceptronica of, I don't know, it's just like kind of a, a dumb term that <laughs> almost no one was happy with. So... GeoGaddy got an 8.6 in Pitchfork, uh, and it did get in. It was on their year-end list of best albums of 2002, and it also was on their list of best IDM albums of all time. But really, I mean, so much of what Boards of Canada or GeoGaddy is isn't really something you can attach to Pitchfork at all, to be honest. No. No, but it is, if it's related, it's in that IDM was always like, the kind of electronica that it was okay for indie outlets to write about. Yeah. But even still, there's an element of like, oh, we're, look at us. Like, ooh, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it, but it's true. I mean, you're not going to see Paul Oakenfold and Spin, but you would see Aphex Twin or Boards of Canada. Yeah. Uh, there's another good piece in Stereo Gum for the 20th anniversary of GeoGaddy that actually kind of just outlines, it talks about down-tempo music, it was saying like in the time i think this is kind of what you were getting at in the time between when music has the right to children was released and this came out like a lot of things changed in the musical landscape Mm -hmm. and one of the biggest ones was moby's play came out in in 1999 and so like the sound of a lot of these down-tempo artists became the sound of like advertisements Mm -hmm. and it mentions thievery corporation yeah i've seen like 
Air, like who who you mentioned earlier, some of those other artists who do feel very much weighted to their time, and that's just not the case at all with Boards of Canada and GeoGaddy. Yeah, no, I would agree. Yeah, for sure. And also, I think pretty safe to say that Boards of Canada has had a huge influence on like vaporwave artists who are kind of oh for sure yeah. I mean, it's a similar sensibility of like looking to the past. Obviously, Boards of Canada is a little bit more 70s retro future and rural natural, whereas Vaporwave tends to be more like, you know, lost shopping malls. <laughs> right. But it's it, but, to me, it feels more like a generational difference than a conceptual difference. Yeah. And I, I do think there is something to be said for... I mean, if you go for a sound that is already outdated by the time that you do it, it it is kind of a, you know, does make a thing sound more timeless. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where would you rank GeoGaddy? Oh my gosh, I never have my rankings pulled up in time for this. Oh uh, God, where are we at? Hmm, I'd probably rank it just under Tori Amos, at least right now. Okay. So that would be, I think, ranked third. Okay. Yeah, for me, it's also just under Tori Amos, which would make it second, I think. But it's kind of hard to rank this because it's just something that you could listen to at almost any time, but I don't necessarily think about actively in the same way that like I think about Little Earthquakes. So I'm putting it under that, but both this and Little Earthquakes are like A-plus albums for me, so... For sure. They I, they just feel, I guess, functionally different in a way. I'm almost like a little scared uh, going on. Our next couple episodes will be, will be fun, but like Into the Future, we're diving full back into the the tropes of the era. Right. And I enjoyed this like respite of... <laughs> of Horses of Good music? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um... But also, we have a letter, our first letter. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, from, this is from, do you want me to read it? Yeah, please. Okay, this is from Harney B, or Harney, who is, has shown up in my Twitch when I've streamed a few times. So, hello, Harney. He says, hello, I really like the podcast. After having recently blazed through The Blood Zone, which was my other podcast that I haven't done any new episodes for for quite some time, an older blogspot posts, the concept of Kitchfork was totally up my alley. Been sharing links all over the Mastodon uh, universe and random Discord since then. Speaking of Discord, I've recently been on a small kick of listening to this period of time where it feels like Discord Records <laughs> was releasing straight up indie rock. Smooth segue. Yeah. Was first made aware uh, after seeing this Rate Your Music list, uh, and he links a, a list of pitchfork's least favorite albums all the albums that they ranked three and below which is actually a pretty cool list to look at Uh, i was looking to see like what uh recent things that they had put on there that were 3.0 and below but there are not that many no uh pointing out pitchfork's biggest pans which included stuff like okay go's first two albums and fake french by el guapo Other related bands would be Q and Not You, Antelope, and Beauty Pill. Elaborating further would reveal that I'm a good decade or two younger than every person from that era. God, I don't think I ever saw the review of Beauty Pill. I don't know of like almost any of those artists, so. You know, a lot of them are like people I, I'm like a couple of degrees of separation from. Oh, wow. Or like follow on Twitter. But uh, they're not, it's the kind of thing that I could definitely see Pitchfork clowning on in the same way that they really hated Joan of Arc. Mm. 
because it's it's indie that's a little weird and a little self-serious hmm. in ways that I think are not palatable. <laughs> not that I'm defending Joan of Arc. I think Joan of Arc is a terrible band, but there was very much a thing where like Pitchfork just, just fucking hated them. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. It's like you almost have to reverse engineer and like kind of get into the mindset of where someone would be in that era in order to understand like why certain things get such a a negative response compared to other things yeah and sometimes it'll it'll be really random like i remember like black kids first ep was like beloved by pitchfork and then when they came out with an album that didn't sound all that different it got like a like a three. Oh, and then they're probably like uh uh, I guess we feel bad about hyping this band that was named Black Kids, but well, they were black. It was all white people. Oh, they were. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's not like it's not like women. It's not like women or yeah, or, because there are so many of those bands that are like that or that girls, are. as it were. Okay, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I just got it confused because that like that era had just so many bands like that that you know, understandable. Yeah. But yeah, uh, he says, I want to link my favorite Pitchfork review. Love how the writer just doesn't care about capitalizing and being formal and supposedly repeats a chat log with Ryan Schreiber. Also, some music gets reviewed. Uh, he links the Eminem Show review from 2002. Oh my gosh, I've never seen this. I guess we should look at it sometime. Yeah, I've never seen it either. He says, do you plan on getting the blogosphere stuff like Hipster Runoff and or the blog aggregator hype machine? Um Yes, we definitely plan to get on to Hipster Runoff. I don't know a lot about Hype Machine, but I do know Anthony, who started it, actually. I've hung out with him a few times. Well, that would be a fun guest for an app. Yeah, I I haven't talked to him in a while. But yeah, that would be an interesting guest. Um, Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of cultural detritus from the era that I think is worth getting into, and that would be part of it. We will definitely talk about Hipster Runoff, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Um. It would be cool to get an older person's perspective on the blogosphere, as most of it was way literate and formal and well-mannered for my 4chan browsing ass at the time. Yeah, well, you're not going to learn that much more from me, because I didn't read a lot of it either, to be honest. I was deep. I was deep in, in the blog spots and, the, and all that shit. I don't know if I'd call it literate. <laughs> a lot of it was fairly portentous and into itself with the exception of something like last plane to jakarta which i think is actually really well done i just imagine them all being the guy in that uh Kalel tickle human giant sketch where he's like i'm a tastemaker and i don't taste your tapes and tapes <laughs> yes precisely <laughs> so frank you gonna post up that mp3 no i don't taste it what do you mean you don't taste it? I'm a taste maker. I don't taste your tapes and tapes. Yeah, you're not missing much. At some point, we'll talk about it, and I can, I could relive those glory days of downloading old like Japanese post-punk albums from Blogspot or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sad. I don't know. The Blogosphere stuff does make me sad because it's like that stuff did have a, a pretty huge impact, and it did kind of have an impact on you know like what pitchfork or any of those publications wrote about and well and and without it pitchfork has become much more monolithic yeah it's something that could uh potentially push those things in a direction to where it gets pitchfork or publications like that i guess stereo gum to write about it in a way that is um but yeah Arnie B says, and that should be it. Sorry for the overlong post. Again, love the show and keep up the good works. Well, thank you so much for the letter. That was great. Yeah, so you can send us letters slash emails at kitchforkpodcast at gmail.com. 
I also just want to say my friend Derek asked if I've ever seen the movie The Endless. He says, I just realized it feels like a quasi-adaptation of Geo Gatti that literalizes the album's various preoccupations into a narrative. I have never seen that movie, but I am interested to check it out. I have also never seen that movie. Uh, I'm excited to, yeah, look at it. Again, we're apparently going to turn into a film podcast before long, so <laughs> this will be part of it. Yeah, and he said he listened to the Liz Fair episode. Yeah, he decided to check out White Chocolate Space Egg, and he's enjoying it, so... Make sure you check out Whip Smart, too. That's another extremely underrated album. And I think is maybe her weirdest in terms of song, song structure. Underrated, Liz Fair in general. Yeah, I need to check out more of her stuff, too. Whip Smart is great. I think it's just weird. <laughs> like, it's the weird songs from, from Exile and Guyville taken to their extremes. Okay, I would like to hear more stuff like Canary. That's my favorite Liz Fair song that I... Well, then you would love the opening track from Whip Smart, which is Chopsticks and is a lot like Canary. Okay, I will definitely check that out. But yeah, uh, so next episode, do you want to say what we're doing? I'll, I'll drum roll. <laughs> I keep for, why don't I keep the list in front of me? Okay, well, we're doing Blazing Arrow by Black Alicious. Oh, that's right. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm so stoked for that. Yeah. Love that album. One of the things that I have a little bit of a history with, which we can talk about, I also just wanted to cover a hip-hop album. We are, you know, I I don't think either of us are hip-hop experts, so... I'm not an expert, but I do love it, and I think one thing that is going to be worth getting into on this podcast is what I've always considered, like, a second golden age of hip-hop, which is the early aughts, like, indie hip-hop scene. Yeah, yeah where like mf doom is really like breaking out mm-hmm. where you get the um jay dilla anti-con people jay dilla lp you know dj shadow some of those people are, are producers and not rappers but still there's a lot of like indie hip-hop had a thing going on in the early aughts and it was it was pretty cool yeah and i think that's like blacklicious was something that my friend sent me like mp3s of but i also remember this other artist bus driver like listening to which that guy got me too i guess which is unfortunate but that was like another like weird alt you know like indie hip-hop artist at the time so you're right it was like a thing and i think this album it was well reviewed by pitchfork but it's kind of a little bit forgotten Blackalicious was Gift of Gab, who unfortunately uh, passed away last year. Right. And he really is the attraction with Black. That guy is crazy skilled. Uh, but there is a bit of that lyrical miracle uh, <laughs> thing going on there, which, I mean, we can talk about. But a very interesting, in some ways of its time, but in some ways still very good album. But yeah, it'll be a fun thing to talk about. It's of its time in a way that I think is doesn't sound dated because it wasn't replicated very much (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah thank you for listening yeah rate and review us on apple podcasts i guess please (laughs) yeah spread the word yeah please spread the word please post us in your uh (laughs) in your forums in your your, your, your music forums your r muse yeah or your reddit and yeah, so I was uh, your co-host, Liz Ryerson. Uh, and I was your other co-host, Max Cohen. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this trip to the past inside the present. Beautiful. And you say that you're looking for an answer. Everywhere you look, it seems it can't be found. Like searching, trying to find a rainbow. No one's ever found the treasure's told to be. But if you're 
I've got the money. 